the third episode of Measure Direction. I am Jason Rose, a content strategist here at Digital Services, and I'm joined by the leader of our analytics practice, Tom Miller. What's up, Tom? What's up? All right, let's get right into the first question. How can you measure the impact of digital marketing efforts to in-store sales in a quantifiable way? And this question comes from an account manager here at Digital Services, Jacqui Montano. She can be found at at qui, Q-U-I, Jacqui82. So, Q-U-I-J-A-C-Q-U-I-82. Wow, well, great question and from Jackie with a horrible Twitter handle. Quee <laughs> <laughs> Jackie. No, but it really is a great question. Um, you know, this is sort of a, a long-standing question that's been around since sort of the beginning of digital marketing, right? It's, it's what, is, what is really the lift. And if you're not an e-commerce company but you are selling a product, what are the effects of digital on in-store? So let's talk about, you know, plug and play is the easiest way to go here. There is a lot of technology, a lot of emerging technology that helps bridge that online to offline gap. There are panels now that use your phone's location. So, you know, one of the great enabling technologies for getting more of this shopper information is people have their phones on them. And so there are panels now that you can opt into. So you install an app on your phone and that app has locational awareness. And when you go into certain types of places, it will actually track you. Kind of like how a Nielsen box would track what you look at on the television. It's kind of cool, Did right? you see that Amazon actually wants to I mean, this was just a rumored thing. I was reading an article, but Amazon's bringing their bookstores, and they want to set it up so that people can walk into their bookstore, pick a book off the shelf, and just walk out of the store. Not having to talk to a cashier, everything just almost becomes automated through the app or the panel or whatever they have. Exactly. Again, just a rumor, but along the same lines. Exactly. And think of how much easier it is for Amazon's digital marketers to do an attribution model based on that, because they know they've targeted you with an ad, right? They know what ad is getting you to the store, what ad is actually getting you to purchase, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, they can probably predict even before you walk into that bookstore based on what you've looked at on the site, where right. you've kind of lingered, what your interests are. When I mean, you walk into that store and they pretty much can almost just point you straight at where they know you're going to end up. So I have another question for you. Do you shop at CVS? I do. I actually, that was my first job. I was working <laughs> at a CVS. So you have an extra care card? Yep. So, you know, CVS, in, you know, not to single them out, but they do an amazing job with their loyalty program, the, the extra care card their extra bucks, et cetera, their coupons. There's a very strong online to offline conversion component of how they're marketing online, right? So I'm an extra care card holder. I can order on CVS.com. They have a big e-commerce platform. I've personally never used it, right? But what I do use is they send me coupons to my email box. I actually have to click into CVS.com to associate that coupon to my card, and then I'll go into the store and redeem it. And, you know, uh, that's a very, um, very specific way of using a loyalty program or a store card to, 
you know, target me to get me to come into the store and then understand my shopping dynamic because I'm very strongly incentivized to associate my purchases at CVS to my profile yep. that they have on me. I mean, this was a, a decade ago, I guess, that I worked there, but that was the biggest thing they drilled to us from day one, day one the manager. If they heard you not, first thing you ask when a customer comes up, do you have an extra tarot card? We didn't say that that was like tantamount to the worst thing you could do being an employee there. So, I mean, they were early to that party as far as really understanding the importance of that. Right, and that, that you know, that the value of that data to them in a lot of cases aggregated is probably way more than the discounts that they're offering, right? Those extra care bucks that you get, you get five extra care bucks, you know, the, your marketing data within those transactions is probably way more worth way more to them than that. What would you, I mean, this is a tough question to just throw, mm -hmm. but what would you estimate the value actually to be? So $5 and extra bucks they're giving out, what do you think the, the data is worth? Oh man, well, that is a really tough question. All right, yeah. so let's, let's break it down. So, it, you know, let's say we could, I mean, CVS is operating on the small margins, not micro margins, right? It's not like a grocery store. They're not trying to achieve a 5% margin on cost of goods sold, right? They're probably achieve, they're probably trying to achieve more like a 7% margin on cost of goods sold. I, this is a number we could probably look up, so I hope I'm yeah. not way off. <laughs> Sound like an idiot. But regardless, you know, what you're trying to say is, okay, what their primary metric is probably for their digital marketing team that isn't involved with the e-commerce, right, is how can we get people in store, right? Because they know that if you go to CVS, you're not just buying one thing, right? And you're not just um, – you're going in and there's a – cost per transaction or a value per transaction and then a, a long-term value and that long-term value can be calculated you know based on your lifetime but probably more like based on a forward looking of or a backwards looking of 12 months right yeah. and so what they're trying to do is raise those values up because they know that a, at a certain threshold you become a much more profitable customer to them because they're spending less actually marketing to you yeah, it's a classic, like it's much cheaper to keep a customer than get a new one. Exactly, exactly. Um, so there's that. And then, um, you know, the other the other option, I guess, would be store cards, right? Store cards um, in a very similar uh, mechanism as loyalty programs. But, uh, you know, if you use a store credit card, like a Target card, for example, Target's able to much better track what you're purchasing, how you're purchasing it, particularly within Target, right? It's like there's no... There's no barrier there to what they can look at. Um, so, I mean, let's say you you can't, you don't have, you know, you're a smaller company. You don't have these resources to, uh, you know, have a, even have a loyalty program, right? Although I, I, I would argue that really any small brick and mortar shop sort of ought to have a loyalty program just for the purpose of understanding your customer a little bit better, right? And marketing to them a little bit better. Um, you know, what else can we look at, right? Well, actually, before we even get farther into this, what you said okay. when you brought up Target reminded me of something. Um, do you remember a couple of years ago when Target got in all that trouble and there was the controversy over the, they were predicting when women were pregnant? Sure. Yeah, that was, I mean, <laughs> for those that don't know, so more or less what the story was is Target came up with an algorithm that women who are a couple months pregnant, six months pregnant, nine months pregnant, all buy certain products. So from in-store purchases, they were able to figure out 
women that were pregnant and send them catalogs that had a lot of things in it that women that are pregnant buy. Oh, it was, Am I way, explaining it was this correctly? No, it was way crazier than that. Way crazier. So what they did is they looked at purchase behavior and then they looked at demographic uh, signals, and they basically created this predictive algorithm that said you are likely to be pregnant based on based on your purchases, right? But based on also, like, where you lived, oh, how really? old you were. Yeah, yeah and, and it was scary accurate, and it was so scary. I mean, I, I can't speak to the actual accuracy of it, but the anecdotal evidence is that there were women that were pregnant but did not realize that they were pregnant that got flyers in the mail that said, hey, here's all this baby stuff. Thanks for you. And they were like, why is Target sending me this? And then OPS, they find out in a matter of weeks that, oh, I'm actually pregnant, right? I remember the big headline on Forbes was uh, Target tells girl's father, tells 16-year-old yes. girl's father yes. that she's pregnant before he knows it. Yeah, and that's like one of the legends or the, one of the anecdotes as well. It's yeah. like this, this the you know, imagine having your 16-year-old daughter get this flyer and then she actually winds up being pregnant and yeah. you find out basically because of this flyer, right? Yeah. It's... Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of awesome, so how does, but it's also kind of terrifying. Yeah, well, that's where I was going to lead to. It's like, how do stores kind of, you know, balance that? As a data person, do you find that crossing a line, or do you think that's just really good data <clears throat> and marketing? You know, I think it is, it, it, it's sort of, the line is more of a cultural potential taboo and, and sort of a bad press than a poor marketing decision, right? So if I could if I could figure out that you as a consumer are going to based on some of your demographic and your purchase behavior or any other type of behavior, right? If I can predict that you are going to be highly likely to want to purchase tickets to the US Open in, you know, Flushing in June. And I put an ad in front of you that gives you an offer, you know, gives you a compelling offer to buy that ticket, you're actually going to be pleased with that experience, right? I mean, I think part of the magic of using predictive analytics and advertising is it's not really an interruptive process. You know, like the, the reason why we have banner blindness online and why, you know, most digital advertising doesn't work is because it's not really it's not something that's relevant to our lives, right? It's it, when was the last time you saw a banner ad, and, yeah. or of something that was even remotely yeah, relevant? And I and, it, and I can think of it, and I can think of it as if I go, I've gone on, you know, analytics technology vendor sites and been remarketed to, right? So I've been on, you know, Tableau.com, and I, I see Tableau remarketing. I did a Tableau remarketing campaign, and that makes a lot of sense, right? But you know, beyond that, the display advertising that I see is, by and large, garbage. And um, we're going to talk about display advertising in the next question, I think. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I, I, I think that's that's pretty problematic. Um, but that's not, you know, that's sort of tangential to the question. All right, so do you want to, is there anything you want to say to finish up the first question? Oh, no, I, I want to keep going. So, so, you know, we, we sort of talk about, Customer data, customer purchase data, if you have access to it, obviously, that makes things really easy. Um, the other thing that you can look at is if you are a 
retailer and you have a store locator function on your site, right? Or you have a couponing function on your site. The, that usage and understanding the dynamics of that usage versus who's actually going in the store at a macro level is, is a great indicator, right? So you seek out those behaviors that signal purchase intent, right? Or, or visit store visit intent. And then you can use that as a proxy for purchase behavior, right? So, you know, you can't optimize your advertising to driving people into the store just because there is there is no direct data link, but you can optimize your advertising very easily to purchase intent signaling behavior. Make sense? Yes. Is there any kind of potential risk there? I mean, are there always strong metrics or sometimes not so much? Yeah, I mean, the risk is that there's no direct tie, right? So, yeah. you know, does a store locator mean that you're going to go to the store? I mean, I, I, I think that it's it's a pretty wonderful KPI to to be driving people to store locators. It's not necessarily a thing that happens. I mean, there, there are a whole lot of context to using a store locator, right? You could be in your car or about to leave somewhere and you want to visit, say, um, a McDonald's that's on your way home. I mean, McDonald's is a bad example because they're everywhere. You want to visit the Chick-fil-A in Wallingford, or you want to visit Chick-fil-A on your way home. You type Chick-fil-A into your phone, and you know that it's in Wallingford, so I, that's an in the moment. I want to go to this place. Let's go. You might be sitting at your desk at work, and you might be curious about where there's an auto parts store near your house, right? And you might use advanced auto parts I'm dropping all these <laughs> brands, <laughs> but it's easier to talk about specific brands. So you might use advanced auto parts store locator in that case, but it, you, you might not be actually going to the store that day. It might be, you know, a weekend thing or something like that. So it's, you know, again, it's not perfect, but it's, it's pretty great in, in really understanding, and you can do this with voice of customer research, understanding the contexts of the usage of the store locator is pretty insightful as well. All right, cool. Yeah. Is there any way to really actually meet the customer at that exact point of sale? It, yes. So, yeah, sure. I mean, you're saying understand the online dynamic at the point of sale. So, you know, a lot of companies do this, uh, small and large companies. Um, they will actually do a you know, either randomized or in every single customer sort of survey uh, upon purchase. You know, where are you coming from? You know, how did you find out about us? Have you seen our website? Um, can we get your email, right? And, and that sort of begins, you know, that's sort of building a lattice work of data between the online and the offline. That's something that happens when you know you have the customer in front of you and you're able to, in a very deliberate way, ask them something relevant to themselves. And you can also do that online, right? I mean, so you want you you really ought to be performing voice to customer research on your website to understand those types of dynamics uh, for your customer analytics. Cool. Any yeah. other methods that you want to uh, discuss before we wrap up? Uh, you know, I mean, at point of sale, you know, there's the bed, bath, and beyond method too, right? So rather than saying... Asking very specific question, you ask one question to everybody, which is, what is your zip code? And that, it always annoys the crap out of me. 
almost turned the explicit. But um, what you can do with that is understanding your media mix. So you can do media mix analysis really well in that case. And you can say, okay, we're up in digital. I mean, it's you know digital and traditional media. When you have all that segmented by zip, and you know you're, you have a customer sample by zip, and you know what people are buying, uh, it really makes it much easier to do factorial analysis on your media mix, right? So you could say, okay, we're up heavy digital in these zip codes. We're up, you know, heavy TV in these zip codes. Let's see what the differences are of in-store. Mix. So the zip code almost becomes like the control and the experiment. Yeah, it's the, like the key for everybody, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the other thing you can do is you can do, like, media mix analyses in similar regions, right? And that, this is sort of more of a media mix question, but, you know, there's certain cities that have very similar cultural and demographic characteristics. And so you can do media mix testing or even holdout testing between those cities. So, for instance, Pittsburgh and Cleveland are pretty similar in a lot of ways. Buffalo and Rochester Give me some other ones, Nashville and Louisville, right? It's like they're, they're very similar cities it, culturally in size and demographics. And you, you can do some experimentation on them to really understand what media is working and what mix, considering them as almost equals, right? All right, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Cool. All right, so ready for the next one? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Enthusiasm straight from Tom well, do, do you want to Do you want to give our intro? Yeah, I guess we'll do the intro now. So my name is Jason Rose. I'm a content strategist here at Digital Surgeons. This is Measure Direction, an analytics audience-driven podcast that we do with our leader of our analytics practice, Tom Miller. So hey, how's it going? Every week, you know, we have a bit.ly bit.ly slash Measure Direction where people can submit questions and we do our best to answer them, or I should say Tom does and I pick his brain a little bit. Thank you. Uh, Digital Surgeons, we're a design and innovation firm out of New Haven, Connecticut. We've been doing some really exciting, innovative marketing work that um, I urge you to go to our website and check it out. Awesome. Cool. Yeah, and I would you know, second the encouragement of anyone listening. If, if you want to hear us discuss um, anything related to analytics, um, you know, customer analytics, digital analytics, uh, digital marketing in general, uh, please submit a question. I mean, this, this podcast is for our users and really by our users. And it's bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash measured direction. Also, I think we should plug, uh, has your analytics power hour episode gone live yet? Uh, I think it goes live next week. All right. So probably by the time this is all produced and published and mixed by our uh, technologist, Adam Chambers, we should give him a shout out for always doing a great job mixing these. And you'll hear his audio bumpers from Cam and Sound, a duo that he's in at the front and back of this episode. But either way, yeah, check out Tom on the Analytics Power Hour. Yeah, it's the Digital Analytics Power Hour. You can find them on iTunes um, or just search Digital Analytics Power Hour. It's my favorite podcast. <laughs> I think about that one. It, it's my second favorite podcast behind the Adventure Zone. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I don't think they'll be insulted to hear that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, great. So let's go on to the second question here. Um, what are the impact of bot spam? Yeah, this what, is a, what is the impact? This is a sort of a poorly worded, anonymously sent question. But the question reads, and I'll do a little editorial on it. 
what are the impacts of bot spam in my analytics reports? <clears throat> and, you know, this is one of those things where, the, this is another one of these questions where I think we're going to talk a little bit about a specific product, and then we're going to talk sort of more about a macro level problem. But it, it's, it's really an ambiguous question, so, you know, I'm going to take this opportunity to talk verbosely about it. <laughs> <laughs> But good to know. yeah, I mean, I think there's two issues, right? There's this this thing going on, and it's been something that's been happening for I don't even know a couple of years um, at least, where people and really hackers um, I don't even know if that's the right word. Annoying spammers is the best word. They're taking advantage and abusing the Google Analytics measurement protocol. And what that allows you to do is to pass data to Google Analytics programmatically. And so what you'll see, and if you own any Google Analytics accounts, you've probably seen this, is you'll see fake events being fired into your account, fake page views or page views that look like domains being fired into your account. And it's typically for, you know, SEO link building services or traffic services, what have you. And it's it's all bogus, right? It's all totally sketchy organizations you would never want to do business with. You know, what they're doing is they're just writing scripts and you could write a Python script to do this very easily. And they're just literally firing requests to Google programmatically, iterating through all of the potential user agent account numbers that exist and hoping that, you know, out of the millions of annoying spam particles they're putting into the atmosphere, one or two of them will land them a client, right? It's the same idea as, um, you know, Cialis spam in your Gmail. It's, yeah. it's, it's not you or I that's making that, making that happen. It's the occasional sucker that actually clicks the link and buy Cialis from like a Russian Cialis provider, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, so what's the impact of all this, you know, spammy traffic? I've gotten a chance to work with some companies on this um, in the past few years, and it, sometimes it's really devastating to your ability to generate insight from Google Analytics, or, or maybe not. It, it doesn't stop you, right? It just makes it much more difficult. And if you're dealing with, you know, a large shared Google Analytics account, it sort of creates a data governance issue where your definition of what is true and real traffic isn't the same as is defined by the product itself, right? What it's seen. Um, you know, I've seen some pretty large publicly traded CPG companies in their main website's main Google Analytics profile have somewhere on the order of 30 to 40% of their traffic that they're seeing or what they think they're seeing is actually not real traffic. It's, it's uh, measurement protocol abuse, right? So uh, it's a problem. Um, and it's, it's really misleading when you're looking at your marketing goals, right? And they really don't mean anything because everything is messed up. Your conversion rates are messed up. Your The way that your events are being tracked is messed up. And it's it's a problem. So what can stakeholders do to keep 
you know, whether it's in their ad tech agency or just digital agency in general, is there any way for the, you know, um, brand X, how do I keep my agencies, digital agencies, honest about this, that their KPIs they're reporting to me are, are accurate? Well, I mean, you can't fall asleep with the switch, right? You, you have to understand. I mean, this, this problem isn't that big of a problem because it's, by and large, a technical problem. And if you properly implement your tags and your filters within Google Analytics, then it's not a problem. Um, so, so how do you do that where you go about actually? Sure, we can talk about that. So, you know, I use filters generally. Um, so filter on the refer. Um, you know, a, a lot of places are tracking blacklists of refers uh, and use regular expressions to filter them out of profiles. Um, one of the things that, that we've sort of noticed within the digital analytics community is that a lot of these spam, um, a lot of this spam data is being uh, sent to a primary property, so a dash 01 of your user account. Um, so setting up your primary or, you know, at least your first primary as dash 02, there is some evidence there. Use 01 as dev or even use 01 as spam, right? The, the most powerful thing you can do is whitelist your property domains. So basically set up filters that, so that requests to your domains are the only ones included in the main view. Um, you know, a lot of these spam robots that are doing this are not bothering or even, you know, not even bothering to understand that your website, www.yourwebsite.com, should really be the only domain that is serving this tag to its users, right? Yeah. And so Google gives you a pretty, pretty good workaround there with a filter. And then, you know, one of the most powerful things you can do is geo-limit your requests to, to that property. So really, 100% of the time, I start and I exclude Russia, the Philippines, and Indonesia. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a business question for you. If you're a U.S. only business, all of your customers are really only in the U.S. and all of your potential and uh, current and future analytics reporting is only going to be on people that are visiting your site from the U.S. Hell, set up a filter that just says, you know, include only United States. Yeah. And that will eliminate a lot of the problem um, because most of these most of these requests are coming from outside the United States, mostly from Russia. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And of course, since I just took the analytics certification, yes. I do feel like I have to say that, of course, you have to maintain one unfiltered view, right? Isn't that kind of just that's a very the course? Yes, you're always like you know best practice. That is a best practice, of course. Yeah, so you always have a raw look at your data. Um, it, you know, the extremely good good practice. So what was the uh, second issue that you raised before with us? Sure. So, you know, when I think about bot traffic, and it's sort of a topic I'm a little obsessed with and have been for a few years, is um, what I think about is ad fraud bots. Um, the, the concept of headless browsers viewing pages across the Internet, and I say viewing because they're not humans, right? But headless browsers requesting pages across the internet um, as part of a giant global 
<laughs> organized crime ring, which is which is what it is. Yeah. Um, so you know, I went to see a guy named Michael Tiffany, um, and he's a co-founder of a company called White Ops. Speak at a conference a few years ago, and it sort of opened my eyes to this world of, you know, how sort of this hijacked computer capacity that has come because of, you know, these viruses that are on your parents' or your grandparents' computers in the living room, right? You know, how that is actually being monetized, right? Because I, I come from the 90s, right? And, and I sort of got into this industry in the 90s. And back in the 90s, computer viruses were a major problem. And they were a problem because that was a vector for sending out spam emails, right? So your computer would get infected, and then it would just, you know, the controller of your computer would just use some part of your computer's capacity and just spam, 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 right? That was the main way that they, they being the criminals that wrote the viruses and took over your computer, made money. And what has happened, and this has sort of happened, I don't know, and like since the early, early aughts, is that there's been this really dramatic shift to create these headless browser programs that look and act like real people, but are visiting sites that are set up by these crime syndicates to basically serve banner ads to these fake people, and then they, they make money on that serving. So they're like these, these shady fake publishers that are monetizing fake traffic that they themselves are creating they through... They sell that traffic to a company or whatever and say it's... Right, right, right. Yeah. Or they're selling that traffic to a company, right? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's a, um, it's a, it's a major, major problem. And, and White Ops, I mean, they're a company, so they're incentivized to, to make this seem like a bigger deal than it might be. But they, they claim that bot fraud will be a $7 billion problem for marketers in 2016. Wow. $7 billion with a B. Yeah, right. and, and, you know, I've seen stats thrown around, and I, I, I actually believe a lot of these stats that 50% of web traffic is actually not human traffic, right? And part of it, you know, part of that traffic also are what I would call benevolent bots. So, you know, you have search indexers, you have job listing indexers, right? You have all of these companies that are crawling the web in a friendly and mindful way and taking the data from web pages and indexing it in some way that's useful, right? So Google's the biggest example of it. They go on your website, they index your website into their search, and then you can search for things on the web and find it thanks to Google doing that work, right? Um, you know, you think about like job sites like Indeed does the same thing, right? So Indeed is out there and they're crawling websites looking for job listings transferring them into their own format, and then they're aggregating them all together. So right. the point being that a headless browser isn't necessarily a evil thing, that there's a lot of... Not at all. Yeah, there's Not very, at all. very strong uses for them, and they're absolutely a necessity. It's just... Correct. Using, ...using it for good, not evil. So so what has happened over the last, um, you know, 15 years or so is that these headless browsers are now able to execute... JavaScript, right? And so what that is creating havoc with are analytics tags, advertising tags, and other marketing tags, right? 
So what's happening is these headless browsers are coming onto sites. They're executing JavaScript. The, they're acting completely like a regular, you know, person-driven browser. And the technology still hasn't quite caught up to the browser writer's ability to make a convincing argument that this is not actually not a person, right? Yeah. And part of the way that they do that and part of why this is such a major and insidious problem is they actually mimic real people's search habits. And that means that every website, some percentage of its traffic is actually not a human being, right? Because they're, they're trying to make things look real, so they're following links. They're occasionally clicking banner ads, right? And they're landing on all these sites, right? So if you think about a company like uh, Outbrain, for example, right? Outbrain hangs these ads like on the bottom of a lot of content pages. Yeah, the recommended articles. Right. And they're getting clicked by robots, right? And they're getting clicked by people too. But that's sort of, you can imagine if I'm a robot and I'm trying to monetize banner advertisement on some site, I'm not just going to go to that site and hit it 50,000 times. What I'm going to do is I'm going to surf around until I find that site, right, using an Outbrain link, click to, this, click to the site, register the whatever it is, 0.001 cent for the, for, the bod, for the broader, for the organized crime syndicate, and then just rinse and repeat that across 50,000 different computers, right, yeah. that, have, that have been virused. Um, so it, yeah, suddenly they're making some real money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're making about $7 billion, right? Yeah. I mean, you think about it, and it's like, you know, it's all well and good. And, and I guess some of the criticisms of the pushback on this is that a lot of digital marketers say, and I've, I've read, you know, really eloquent arguments that we shouldn't be worried about this because what's happening is I, if I go and buy banner ads, right, it, most of the time I'm buying banner ads in an e-commerce situation, right? I'm trying to get people to discover my product and buy it online. And I don't really care if 50% of the people that view my banners are human or not, as long as I'm seeing a good return on ad spend for my spend. In other words, if I'm marketing to 500 people and 500 bots, but 50 of those people actually come on my site and complete a transaction, I don't really care about the bots. Yeah, it right? actually means your marketing is converting at a higher percentage than you right. might be reporting in a way. But the problem is, is that that $7 billion is being used for a lot of other bad things around the world. Yeah. Right? I mean, period. End yeah. of day. Right? Human trafficking. Yep. Drug trafficking. Yeah, it's a lot of money in really wrong pockets. Civil wars yeah. in poor countries. You yeah. know, like that's what's happening with that money. Yeah. Right? Um, Manhattan real estate. No. But um, <laughs> so, you know, that's 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 the problem. And, you know, it really started because of a combination of bad technology and bad incentive within the, what I would call the display advertising industry. And to be fair, in the last you know two or three years, there's really been a major push. I mean, the major push to what is called viewability, quote-unquote viewability, is really a push to eliminate a lot of this non-human traffic. I mean, you know, the way that viewability was spun was to say, 
oh, well, we want to make sure that people aren't buying ads that appear below the fold. Um, really what it is is we want to make sure that people aren't buying ads that are below the fold to humans or just on the page to bots. That's really how, how that's really the truth of how that, yeah, what the, that is, that push is. Um, so, I mean, what are the steps for solving this? Or, I mean, how do you, how do you combat well, it? Well, let's talk about how this problem came to be, right? So we have this major incentive problem because we have advertisers, particularly like brand advertisers, want banner inventory, right? Yeah. Particularly, you know, sort of as things, um, as the economy rebuilt from the early 2000s. And it, it became a, you know, advertising became a really major and important, you know, advertising sort of got, web advertising sort of figured out, right? There were some major technological shifts. There was a lot of consolidation. Um, and it became a really good way to spend marketing dollars online, or at least it was thought to be, right? Um, publishers, you know, you have this rise of the publishers. And I, I think the biggest publisher was probably um, the one that sort of sticks out in my mind, having lived in DC, was Huffington Post, right? Huffington Post sort of came out of nowhere and got bought by AOL. Yep. Got bought by AOL in like, what, 07? Yeah, somewhere around there for the massive, massive sum of money. Yeah, a real, yeah, like a billion dollars. Yeah. yeah. Which today doesn't seem like that yeah. much money, but yeah, it was, a, it was a really big deal. And, you know, to this day, I still wonder, like, how much of that traffic that AOL thought it was buying is actually real people, right? Yeah. But, you know, so publishers wanted to sell the inventory. Publishers like, you know, I mean, uh, Huffington Post is a great example. And then you have sort of these intermediaries, the media agencies of the time, and they wanted to, you know, they make a cut of the total brand advertising budget, right? So their incentive is to spend as much budget as possible. And so what you've got is you, you have like a messed up supply and demand curve because what publishers were able to also do at the time, you have this rise of traffic, like traffic brokers, basically. You could pay... A company, you know, five cents for a thousand visitors, right? And I'm air quotes, which you can't see on the podcast, but it's <laughs> a thousand visitors, which, you know, some of which may have been bots, all of which may have been bots, right? They they were concerned with supplying traffic to people, um, and so you sort of had companies selling a product with high demand but infinite supply, right? And so. Publishers never wanted to turn contract away, right? Because it was mostly direct deals, right? There's nothing like programmatic or anything like that. So publishers never wanted to turn a contract away. And so what they would do is they would take on any contracts and just buy traffic to support it, right? And advertisers wanted their budgets to be spent, right? So they put pressure on the agencies to fully spend out their budget. See, the last thing the agency wanted to do is say, hey, you know, we can only spend 80% of your media budget. Well, that's a major problem too, right? So you yeah. can see where all these incentives sort of collided to create this ecosystem where fraud was it, it very much able to grow and flourish, yeah. right? And, you know, as publishers got smarter, as agencies got smarter, especially as advertisers got smarter, because they're really holding the money bag. They've pushed to make traffic more and more quality. So it's the push to viewability. It's a push away from non-human traffic, right? But in the meantime, what has happened is that the bot creators have gotten more and more sophisticated in the way that they're writing the bots to make them 
pretty much, I mean, you, you could pretty much write an undetectable bot at this point. And um, it's unfortunate, but that that is sort of where we are now with the state of, of display advertising on the web. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to make any claims that that's how it is for any publisher, right? But, um, you know, you also have sort of the rise of these other platforms and the rise of programmatic, which is sort of more properly pricing, right? It's more real-time pricing, all of the value of traffic. And then you also have players in the industry like Google and Facebook, among a slew of others, that have really been extremely in front of this issue and have taken um, great steps to ensure that their traffic is human. Now, Facebook has an inherent example or an inherent advantage because they are, you have to log into their platform, right? So publishers where you have to log in have an inherent advantage anyway because a, a bot is not going to log in, right? Or, or unless they're really strongly incentivized to, why would they, yeah. right? So in, in, you know, part of the rise of paywalls, like this is a factor in the rise of paywalls because you know that if you're limiting your viewers to a certain number of articles, that you're also limiting bots to a certain number of articles. So you're that. upping you're upping the overall quality of your of your banner pool. Yeah, I mean there's there's a lot there's a lot to it. So what do you do about it? I mean, so you know, as I mentioned, I'm obsessed with it with this issue, and part of the reason why I'm obsessed with this issue is because I've actually helped build a solution to this problem, right? Um, so a few years ago, I actually wrote a and it, it wasn't a single piece of software; it was a system that basically scored a single browser session based on a number of factors, much like, I don't know if you used to have email with spam assassin on it, maybe in college, yeah. where you'd get like a questionable email and it would have like the spam assassin score on it. Yeah. So spam assassin, this is the model I used, it's basically spam assassin has, I want to say it's like two dozen different factors. And as an email administrator, you can wait all of these factors and you know some of the factors are like where was the origination server what how many hops did the email take before it got to your server uh, does it have the word Cialis in it right <laughs> all of these all of these different factors and basically if your score reaches reaches a certain threshold then spam assassin just marks it as junk right and then you can set up rules to within your email system to deal with that however you want right and so I set up a very similar system to do that with browser sessions. What um, were the, uh, the factors? Sure, yeah. So IP address blocks, right? So certain um, IP addresses, particularly in certain countries, um, were just automatically spam-botted, right? I mean, they were just bots. Um, there are also certain proxy servers within the United States that seem to have a much higher likelihood of being non-human traffic than others. Uh, the biggest one is browser user agent. So, you know, when, you, when your browser makes a request to any site, it actually sends the user agent, which is your browser, basically your browser's fingerprint. I mean, that's not the right way to say it. It's, it's the, the name of your browser, the version of your browser. So, in, you know, in the case of your computer, it might be Chrome 21. It's just a big string of characters that identifies your browser, and sometimes it identifies the plugins that your browser has, things like that. 
you know, that, that's actually a super easy one because the libraries that are used to write bots, um, and I should talk about that as well. So there's this new, and it's not even really that new, but there's this server software that has been written in JavaScript, right? It's called Node. And we use Node, I mean, it's, it's very in vogue to use Node. And it just basically allows you to do all your server-side scripting in JavaScript. And when Node sort of came to, came to be, it re it's really an enabling technology for these bots because you're able to write your, your fake headless browser in Node and use JavaScript almost natively, right? So you're not doing Python to JavaScript or Perl to JavaScript or whatever else you're writing these bots in you're really writing JavaScript to execute JavaScript. And it makes things much, much simpler. Um, so all of these different libraries of code that you could, you could write a crawler with, right, because that's essentially what you're writing, is, is a web crawler, they all have their own user agents, right? So it's, it's always a really easy red flag that if someone's using a particular library and it shows up in their user agent string, well, they're, they're a bot. They're, they're not human, right? Yeah. So, so that's an easy one. Um, there are also different types of user agent strings that you can, you can score in different ways that you know, might be slightly more likely or might be slightly less likely to be a robot, right? And then the other one that's big is behavior. So you know, we looked at behavior in a number of ways. First was just impossible behavior. So we would look and see, okay, same user agent, from the same IP address, they're making 500 page view requests a minute. They're not a human, right? They're, they're a bot. And some of the bots are really dumb, and some of them are really smart. And the dumb ones are really easy to catch, right? The smart ones are impossible to catch. What percentage of them would you say are the quote unquote dumb bots that well, are super easy to spot? I have no idea because I have no idea. I have no idea what percentage of the smart ones aren't people. That's true. I have absolutely yeah. no idea. So, <laughs> so there's another tech you can use for behavior. Um, we use the Honeypot project. And so what the Honeypot project is, it's this giant collective sort of data organization that gives you a little piece of code when you join it. It gives you a little piece of code, and you put it on your site, and it basically just creates a link that is invisible to the browser, right, and unclickable to a browser. And so what happens is the bots are going through all the links on the page and they click it. And then all of a sudden that IP address, excuse me, within the Honeypot project gets logged. And then what you can do is you can actually make a request to the Honeypot project in real time and get a score for that particular IP address from them. So that's a huge factor. It's almost like in the, uh, the liquor store, like hanging up the fake IDs that have been flagged in the wall. Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. the version of that. <laughs> yeah, and so what we did for this particular publisher is we said, okay, if a score reaches a certain threshold, don't stop the session, right? This was an application level um, system. So everything was occurring sort of before the page was rendered, right? Particularly on that first page view, there was actually a little bit of work going on behind the scenes. But what we said is rather than you know, what we could have done, and we did in a few cases for a few types of bots, is we said, kill the, kill the page. Like, you, you try to view that URL and you see nothing. You see a blank screen. There's no return, right? In what I would say is probably 90, as far as traffic volume goes, it's probably 99.99% of traffic. What we did is we said, don't fire any analytics tags. 
don't fire any any uh, advertising tags. And so what that does is it basically, you know, from a user experience standpoint, it's great. You don't get any banners, right? You don't get um, you don't get tracked at all. And what we did there is we were just hypersensitive to our users' needs, and we were hyper nervous about false positives, right? And so the way that we mitigated that is we just said, hey, you know, no harm, no foul. We're not tracking you. We're not making any money off you. You look suspicious. But what we're also doing is we're not polluting our publisher's inventory anymore. Um, so it's just really a way of erring on the side of caution. And- yeah, correct. And, you know, I, I, you know it, it's, it, it's an interesting problem, and it's, it's sort of a really, it was, you know, a few years ago, it was a really fun sort of process to build, and it's not a product, but it, it was very interesting to sort of get into it. The other thing, you know, the other thing is you do user behavioral signals, which I should mention, like logging in, right? So all of a sudden, you know, if you're, if you're scored high and then you log in, it sends a signal back, you know, there are these feedback loops where we would say, hey, you know, our thinking on this particular IP address block or, or user agent was not right because we know that the bot was overwhelmingly likely to not be logging in. Or it's just like the most clever bot in the world, in which case, have at you. You know what I mean? It's like... Yeah, it's like what you said before, you know, <laughs> they're really, really good bots. It's just... Right. What can you... you never be able to tell. If... Right. And there's other technology out there that we could use. I mean, there, there are obviously systems that you can buy, right? So White Ops provides some of these systems. I give them props because they first sort of turned me on to this whole world. Um... But there are other there are other vendors out there that can buy systems either on the ad serving side or you know on your application side, um, yeah. So it's it's pretty cool. And then other things you can do are you can set up like a captcha, right? So Google now has with their recaptcha almost an automatic captcha. You could you could leverage that in some way or just force people on your website to click the box that says I'm a human. It's a little, it's, it's sort of a user experience nightmare, right? And it's also like, why would we train people to go through the CAPTCHA process just to serve them ads and track them, right? That's not really an incentive, you know, they're not really incentivized to do I that. And I've even seen CAPTCHAs that, it's like it takes you a couple tries as a human to be able to read. Right. You know, it's like, like you said, terrible UX. Right. And, it, it, you know, if, we, if someone were building this and building it even further, what I would do is I would do things like, um, inbound links, so set up inbound links, particularly from email, in a way that signals like I'm very likely to be a person because I'm clicked on this link from this email, and that link would only be available to that person's email address in an email. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you could do it in a way where that would be a very strong human signal. Fortunately, you know, it seems like the industry in the past few years, the economic um, Incentives to for the bot producers are far less, but it's it's one of these things that's going to be around for the rest of the internet. I mean, it's it's there's always going to be some incentive, just like there's some incentive to send out Cialis emails still to try to monetize this. Um, you know, basically, you could just call it server capacity, but it's virus laden computer capacity in some way, and this is. It, you know, in the past, in the past 15 years, has been a very effective way of of monetizing it. And um, I mean, you talked a lot about the late 2000s. It really 
became most insidious than when it's not the thing that shows up on your computer and completely locks it up. And so when that's happening, right. it's very easy to right. say, all right, I can't use my computer anymore. These viruses are horrible. Right. Right. People probably now, you know, no one bitches about viruses as much as they used to, but the problem was just as, if not more insidious, because it was invisible. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, I mean, it's, it's clever, right? I mean, like that the, the technology at play here is clever. And, and again, it's not, it's not super difficult to write a bot that is, that is pretty good. It, it's difficult to write a bot that is very good because, you know, there's, there's additional technology out there related to uh, scroll depth tracking, mouse location tracking, right? That is baked into your browser. The browser technology is getting better at sort of thwarting this behavior. But it's, you know, again, it's always going to be there. And anybody can write a bot, right? Yeah. Like I, I wrote a bot to last year for my fantasy baseball league to every single round of our draft, log in as me to um, our baseball provider. And I don't say that because I don't want to get banned. <laughs> but log in as me to our baseball provider and just snapshot the draft and then upload it to my fantasy baseball application. Oh, that's every, cool. like, 20 seconds or something, right? <laughs> that's but awesome. that's not, it was serving me banner ads, right? I had to turn on JavaScript in my bot because the login process was JavaScript based and I needed to have that functionality, I needed to have cookie functionality, um, which is not dependent on JavaScript, that's dependent on the browser. But it was, um, I'm sure I violated the terms of service in my league. You know what I mean? Kind of have to report you to the commissioner. I am the commissioner. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah. Have you as the crown? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, that's it. I mean, you know, so I, I, I'm not sure if this is, you know, this is sort of just a little sharing of, of a pretty fun project that I worked on for a while. Um, but, and I'm not really sure of the, you know, the, the maintained relevance of it. Because now that we're sort of on, now that I'm on the media side, um, what I'm most focused on, like, some of these other sort of cynical marketers is um, return on ad spend, right? right? And and you know it sort of becomes a question of do I care so much about this bot traffic? And I think it's incumbent upon players like Google, who's who's been in Facebook, who've been you know absolutely sort of in my view pure on this matter, to continue to be pure on the matter and to continue to set the standard for everyone else to follow. Yeah, they want to end up on the right side of history as more and more this shakes out that they can yes. say we were we were early to the party, we understood it was They're, happening and we're on the right side of history on this and a lot of other internet governance issues. So it's a fascinating problem, really. Yeah. Um, I think I feel like I talked about it for like an hour and a half. <laughs> it's worth it. Really, really fascinating stuff. So I guess that's it for the third episode of Measure Direction. Thank All you right. for listening, guys. Again, the place to submit questions that we can answer in coming weeks is bit.ly dash measured direction. So it's B-I-T dot L-Y slash measured direction. What's your uh, Twitter handle? You can find me on Twitter at at J-T Rose, J-A-Y-T Rose. I'm at T Miller, at T-M-L-L-R. And I'll see you on the uh, measure Slack as well. Absolutely. And on Twitter also, if you'd like to submit a question there, put the hashtag measured direction. You can find us on SoundCloud and at, on iTunes. That's right. right. SoundCloud.com slash Measured direction. Yep. Oddly enough. <laughs> All right, great guys. Thanks again. Thank you. Uh-huh.